Hey everybody, welcome back to Just Tucking Around. Today I'm joined with my former teacher, Mr. Callahan. He's a sociology teacher at Wool High School and he also teaches MCC dual enrollment courses as well. Um, Mr. Callahan, thank you for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me, Tucker. I appreciate it. It's great to see you again. You too. How you been doing? I've been doing all right. I've been doing all right. You know, adapting to this new, uh, you know, um, distance, remote learning way of life. Um, but school's officially over now, so it's, uh, uh, you know, that annual uh, relief weight off the shoulders, and now I can uh, just kind of enjoy the next couple of months before we go back. Definitely. So um, one of the reasons I reached out to you to have you come on is because um, during this, uh, this crazy time we're living in, um, you know, we had this horrible incident with um, George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and, you know, so many, so many uh, recent events that built up to like, like it just added on to this whole like coronavirus um, too and just like brought everything on and you delivered like what, I, what one of your students posted was um, a message that you sent to them, basically like being like maybe a, a voice that they they needed to hear or like some like um i don't know how to really describe it but you basically just put things into perspective almost and like calmed everyone down and gave like your perspective on the whole thing too also connecting it to what you teach and so um one of the things you said was since older generations appear to be incapable of leading and making changes that are culture that our culture demands it will ultimately be up to you the future of the United States of America depends on you. I know this is a huge undertaking, but it is necessary and we need your help. Uh, what changes do you think students can make across the country and what actions should be taken to get them done as far as like in relations to this racial injustice that we have going on? That's a, that's a heavy question. <laughs> um, I mean, there's an incredible amount of work to do. And, uh, you know, I felt kind of compelled to, um, share something with my students on Google Classroom. Like that was never intended to see, um, you know, to end up on, on Twitter, to end up on anybody's um, feed. I mean, I guess I'm flattered that it did and it, it received some kind of like um, positive reaction, but that was really just a message that I wanted to share with my students who I had um, this year because I teach sociology and a lot of the, um, the themes in my course surround issues of, uh, of, of race, racism, um, you know, issues of gender, social class, uh, and so on. So I, I, I just kind of felt like it would, um, it would be inappropriate for me to remain silent and, and not at least address uh, what's going on in the world, um, you know, more of like a, a learning experience to try and um, remind my students of some of the the, the concepts that we covered in my class, you know, having this um, sociological imagination uh, and understanding that there are these, uh, these bigger social issues that have a direct impact uh, on, on people's personal lives. So, uh, you know, that was really kind of the motivation behind posting that. Um, but it was also in, in many ways sort of a, a, a call for, um, for help from, you know, the younger generation to uh, hopefully eventually step into the world of education because we don't really get, um, you know, the diverse perspectives in, uh, in, in public education, you know, and there's, there's probably a litany of reasons why that is, but, um, you know, I've just, 
I think a lot about my time as uh, as a student growing up in Lowell, um, and uh, I I couldn't remember ever having a minority teacher. All of my teachers were were white, um, and you know I it made me think about my minority students, my, my black students, Asian, Hispanic students, like they could go through the entire school system uh, only being taught by white teachers, um, you know, and, and not getting that sort of, um, you know, that, that more diverse uh, perspective. So, um, you know, think about like black students always having white teachers all the way through their public school experience, but also think about white students not having minority teachers to kind of give them uh, you know, a different perspective or to right. have some kind of positive interaction with somebody from, um, you know, a different race or, um, you know, looking up to somebody of a different race uh, as like uh, a person to admire or to be a role model. So, um, and I have some thoughts on why we only have white teachers. And I think that part of it is the experience that that kids have going through a public school system. If you always have white teachers, right? Like I can imagine that that sort of um, eliminates going into education uh, as a, a viable career option, right? Because all your teachers are white. This must be a white job, um, right. you know? And so I, I think, I mean, I guess I have no data to back this up, but like, you know, it's not uh, that much of a leap to, um, to imagine that it might, you know, seeing all of your teachers being white might discourage you if you're a person of color, if you're a minority, a black, Asian, or Hispanic person from even pursuing that uh, as a career option. Now, in, in terms of the, um, the racial tension and discord, uh, you know, I, I'm not saying this could fix it, but I imagine that, like, it would be impactful uh, if we had a more diverse um, faculty and staff and students were interacting, uh, you know, with, with teachers uh, who were of a different race than them, um, you know, and that... I, I can't say it would make a difference, but I'd like to think that, you know, it, it could have an impact on uh, some of the ways that we, uh, you know, perceive race uh, in America. I'm right. not sure if that makes sense at all. But. Definitely. Yeah. So, um, wow, that was, that was a lot and that was really good. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, once I get going, I just, you know, I go on a yeah. rant. You know, you've been in my, you've been in my class, you know how I can kind of, you know, Definitely. go off on tangents. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. When I, when I was uh, first, when I, when I was first writing these questions, I'm like, is this going to be too much? And I was like, what am I saying? He's a sociology teacher. He talks for an hour at a time every single day. Um, <laughs> I might have just answered all your questions. In you that really might have. <laughs> there, <right. laughs> um, so um, I've actually been really impressed by like the type of um, like activism and support I've seen like from kids that go to Lojai and people that have gone to Lojai like during like the years like a little above me my age and a little bit younger and um people like like spreading like um like starting protests of their own like I think there was something at Lojai yesterday and there's been a it few was, yeah. in the area and people I know have been going to the ones in Boston and stuff like that and like just like posting and like spreading all kinds of awareness and information and places you can donate to and that's um that's been really inspiring because i don't know if this is something that's happening like in areas on like in lowell like it's such a diverse place where like when something like that happens as a as a, as a white man as as a white person like obviously that's something that like with my white privilege i've never had to like fear or experience like being pulled over by police or like 
being like racially profiled in any way. But like, I think that being from Lowell adds to like a, like it hits more closer to my heart because like I have friends that that could be in any situation. Like I think there was a story of um, yesterday or the day before, like a 19 year old black girl um, was killed or something. And like, so, so one, of, one of my friends like posted like, this really could have been me, like this is insane. And like, like when you see like from that perspective and people like, like that, it really adds to the importance. And I think that, I don't know if, if this, if this is um, backed by statistics or not, but I feel like living and interacting with such a diverse crowd kind of adds to like, well, not adds to, but helps you like become like more open to interaction and like, like less racist, I guess, <laughs> like, like interacting with them on a daily basis. And I definitely, what, what you were saying, like being a teacher and like learning from someone that is um, a minority would definitely add to that too. So yeah, I feel like this is one of the questions that one of the first questions I have here says, where does racism come from? I think I'm kind of answering this on my own, but I'm going to let you elaborate too. But like being like separated from people that like, if you live in a place where everyone looks the same and they're all white people, then the only times you really see people that don't look like you is on TV and like the media portrayal or like stories that you could heard could definitely like change your perspective on them in that way. I don't know. I kind of went on a tangent there. <laughs> but yeah. yeah, no, I, I know what you're saying. I wanted to kind of like circle back to your um, statement about, um, you know, your white privilege. And uh, I think you mentioned something like the example of being pulled over by a police officer. And like, you know, right. one of the things that um, in terms of privilege, like if you did ever get pulled over by the cops, you could be like relatively certain that it was because you were speeding or you did something wrong. Um, but you could also be relatively certain that it wasn't because of the color of your skin. Whereas, you know, I think with like um, black Americans, particularly black males, uh, when they get pulled over by the police, um, you know, it, it very well could have been because of the color of their skin. Um, and I know that like in terms of like white privilege, I know a lot of white people take offense to that because they often confuse white privilege with the idea of struggle that like, you know, if they had a hard life and they had to work really hard to, you know, get a good job and a career and family and a home and so on, um, kind of missing the whole point of what we mean by privilege. Like life is hard in America. Capitalism is really a struggle um, and it's not easy for anybody, but um, it is the color of your skin, if you're white, doesn't make it more difficult for you. Whereas, you know, being black or Asian or Hispanic, that, um, that, that could actually work against you, um, you know, in a, in a society that, um, you know, has seemingly maintained some kind of like undercurrent um, or even overt um, culture of racism, you know, dating back to, oh geez, um, you know, the constitution, the fugitive slave clause, right? Which like um, made it illegal for black people to pursue the same freedoms that, that uh, white people were able to, um, you know, for example, I think it was, I want to say it was Frederick Douglass. Um, you know, he used the term like, you know, he, when he escaped right, and became 
uh, a free man, right? He had stolen his own body because um, under the Fugitive Slave Clause, uh, if, if you were a slave, you were uh, beholden to a slave owner and you owed them labor. Right? And so if you tried to escape and go to another state, you were technically breaking the law. So even for like black people to become, to pursue um, you know, freedom in America historically was, was a criminal act. Wow. Um, so um, what steps do you think can be taken like today to decrease like the amount of racism that we have? <laughs> um, I don't know. Um, Hmm. I, I don't really have the answers to that. Um, right. Um, obviously, there, there needs to be a better um, relationship between uh, the government and law enforcement uh, and the black community. Um, you know, we the criminal justice system in general, uh, you know, tends to focus more on punishment and being punitive, um, throwing people in jail, arresting them, uh, rather than seeking out non-aggressive, non-violent forms of uh, problem solving, like, I don't know, like um, mental health treatment and so on. Um, you know, I know that uh, there's a, a great level of distrust between uh, the black community and, and law enforcement in America. And, um, you know, you with know, good reason, uh, because as I put in my little uh, posting to my students, right, in 2014 and 15, it was like Tamir Rice and Freddie Gray, and Michael Brown, um, and here we are six years later, and the same stuff is happening. Right. Nothing has changed, right? So I think that, like, one of the things that could help is uh, we, we, we need to reevaluate um, policing in America. Um, I can give you an example. Like, as a teacher, uh, as a, a public sector employee, right, a public servant, uh, we are almost every year, like told like, all right, there's education is trending this way. And uh, these are the ways that you should be, um, you know, delivering instruction in your classroom. Um, you know, and these are the ways that you should be assessing students. Uh, so we're constantly changing, we're constantly evolving. Um, you know, it's no longer about like the teacher just being in the front of the room and talking at you for, you know, 45, 50 minutes. Although I did do that a lot in my class, but either way, um, you know, in education, right, we, we are held to the standard that we have to continually improve. Um, if you want to be a teacher, you have to get, you know, uh, a master's degree in order to keep your job. Um, and all the while we're doing that, every year it's like, oh, there's budget cuts, right? We're gonna, we're not gonna be inviting these um, these teachers back, right? We don't have enough supplies. We don't have this. We don't have that, right? We continue to cut education. We're expecting teachers to do more with less. Um, and um, I'm not quite sure we kind of treat law enforcement the same way. Uh, I come from a family of cops. My grandfather was a sergeant in the city of Lowell. Um, I have cousins who are police officers, uncles, right? So I'm from a police family, uh, mm -hmm. you know, um, so I have great respect for, you know, um, you know, the men and women who, who serve our community in that way and protecting and serving, um, you know, but at the same time, I do think that there's some kind of like imbalance in that, like, for law enforcement, for policing, we, we tend to, I think we over-focus on punishment um, rather than looking at ways that we can be um, helping people and rehabilitating them. Right? There are so many people in jail for things like um, drug use. 
uh, or um, mental health issues, right? And these are sort of like public health crises. They're not like they're criminals, but we treat them as such and throw them in jail. Right. Um, you know, and then when they get out, it's hard for them to get jobs and so on. So uh, to kind of circle back to the question, I think that like that could be one way that um, things could improve. Uh, but um, also I think that like education um, is certainly another way. And um, I know that racism is like a tough thing to identify where it comes from um, because it's, it's hard to say that like people are like innately or naturally racist, right? I, right. I might've even used this analogy in your class where like, um, have you ever held a newborn baby and like looked at that baby and you're like, well, that baby's racist. Like, you know, no. like you just, no, <laughs> because, because um, racism is often uh, a byproduct of your socialization, your upbringing. You might learn it from family members, from TV shows, um, from your peers and so on. Uh, so I think we just need to be a better at, um, at recognizing it, uh, better at, uh, you know, raising, you know, younger generations to, uh, be more open and accepting of people from different cultures and different skin colors. Um, and you know, it's, it's not, it's not going to happen overnight, but it's certainly something that, uh, that we need to work on. So I think that like obviously education and possibly reforming or reimagining, uh, you know, the relationship between law enforcement and minorities in America. But again, I don't know. I don't have the solutions. I'm just right, kind definitely. of throwing these ideas out there. Um, one of the analogies I thought of the other day when I was thinking about this was um, how like, you know, how like when, when people get like, people will get a puppy and like, if, they, if the puppy only grows up only being around humans, it might grow up to be afraid of other dogs or um, like aggressive towards other dogs. Mm -hmm. Where if you socialize your puppy at a young age, because I have two dogs and they're both like, one's two, the other one's one, almost. And uh, so like we, we made a, a point to bring it to dog parks. Um, like if we had friends or family members that had dogs, we would socialize them. And obviously like now that they like, after we got our first dog the second dog also helps a lot with that too with our first dog and getting them social but like um my grandmother has a dog that is like older and didn't really get to spend time with other dogs so she's like a horror that dog is horrified of other dogs and like <laughs> eats dogs that probably thinks it's a human because it only knows humans so right, like that was right. one of the things where i was like because i was thinking like are people like born racist and then have to like remove that from them or is it something that's developed? And then I was thinking about like, all right, well, how can I think of this in like a more like natural way? And like, that was the way that came to my mind. And um, I mean, it's probably, it's probably a little bit of both, right? Because we just sort of this kind of have this natural, like, um, I don't know, uh, inclination towards people who look like us, who resemble us. Right. Um, so that's, probably part of it right but then the other part is the the, the learned aspect right where where um kids are are taught um you know maybe from a very young age that i don't know like uh blacks are beneath them or something like that maybe they hear it from their their parents or their grandparents um you know so uh, so i do think it's probably partly both it's probably yeah. learned uh but there is also the uh you know the innate sort of natural aspect where we generally are again more we make more positive uh associations with people who look like us right yeah i wonder if that has anything to do with like imprinting in a way where like 
um, I think I learned about this in psychology a little bit where like when you're like when you're born, like you connect like with your mother and like people around you and like symbols and like things will become more of like a like a safety net or familiarity for you where like when you're introduced to something new, like something you're not familiar with, it could scare you. So like when you're put into like Lowell public schools, when it's such a diverse crowd and you're introduced to that at a young age, I'm sure that helps a lot with like, with that because you're just comfortable with it from, from such a young age. Whereas if someone were to move into Lowell at an older age, coming from a community where it's not diverse and they're, they don't regularly talk and are only taught things like from news reports or something like that, where they could get, and I'm not sympathizing for racists here. I'm just trying to think of like where that comes from. Cause obviously it's wrong. And that's something that they could work on. And one of the, I feel like one of the things that people are saying, the best way to work on that is to really like look deep in yourself. And some people could have some, racist inclinations that they don't even realize until like they're put in that situation i feel like yeah because i'm sure there's a lot of racists where if you ask them if they were racist they would say no and then something would happen and you'd see that they are yeah there could be some kind of implicit bias that they're that they're dealing with right Mm -hmm. Mm. yeah yeah it's um yeah we're we're not going to solve the race issue tonight on uh (laughs) on um Tucking around is the name of the podcast. Just tucking around. <laughs> nice little pun. But it's such like <laughs> it's just um, it's such a huge undertaking, right? Because like I've got my three children, right. and I can steer them in the right direction, and I'm very confident uh, of that. Um, you know, to to raise them, um, you know, to accept all people, regardless of their race, their religion, their social class, whatever. Um, But what we're trying to do is we're trying to, as a country, shift the narrative or shift 320 million people all at once. And that is a huge ship to turn. Um, And so it's not something that's just going to happen right away right it's gonna it's gonna be a slow turn um but you know i i do think it's possible especially with you know your generation um you know you millennials and and gen xers um you know i'm sorry i'm a gen xer Um, the gen gen z yeah um you know it's uh I, i feel like uh your generation is already gone through a lot right a couple of recessions this like pandemic um you know the the issues with um, with racism uh, in America—that's a lot to throw, you know, at uh, right. at young people. We're almost um, so, so socially conscious before we really should be. I I think maybe like right. looking right. back at other you. generations, like that wasn't really something that was the topic of discussion all the time, like it is now. I mean, I, I wasn't alive then, so I'm not 100 percent sure when I right. say right. I mean, my parents are boomers. Um, I'm, you know, I just grew up, you know, in the 80s and 90s and um, there was nothing ever tragic, excuse me, um, or, um, or exciting or um, devastating to the culture or the economy. Like we just didn't really go through that. So, um, you know, I guess in many ways I'm fortunate, but, um, you know, at the same time, 
that probably explains maybe why older generations are not like uh, as equipped to kind of take these issues on and um, you know and and try to and try to induce change uh, you know for the future. Right, and um, I'm going to shift gears a little bit and. Um, so Nickelodeon played an eight minute and 46 second um, black screen with the sound of breathing to bring awareness to the issue and share the story of George Floyd. And this received a lot of backlash from parents who didn't want their children to know about this. Um, do, you think, what, do you think it is important for children to learn about racial injustice at such a young age? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, it, it's a sensitive topic to try to explain. Um, to say seven-year-old, um, you know, about like why all these protests are happening, you know, and it, you know, it's, uh, you know, seven-year-olds, their minds are like sponges, right? Everything's so new and amazing to them. And, you know, and then for me as a parent, I have to be like, oh, um, the police killed this black man. Uh, they kept his knee on his neck for um, eight or nine minutes uh, and, and then when the question's like, well, why, why did he do that? Right. And like, it's, it's, it's a tough hard. question. It's a hard yeah. It's a tough question to answer because you, you know, when they're at such a young age, you know, you just want them to be happy and playing and outdoors and, you know, just enjoying life uh, right. while they're young. But then it's like, uh, you know, well, because of the, <laughs> um, you know, the systemic racism that exists in America, kid. Uh, and I know you're only in first grade, but you better get used to it now. I don't know. It's like, how yeah, do you really explain? Tough. Right. Um, but, you know, I, I'm not opposed to, uh, you know, companies, uh, you know, backing up the, the movements, to the protest. Mm -hmm. uh, so um, I, I would support Nickelodeon doing that. Um, but, you know, in terms of like the backlash from parents, uh, you know, it, it's regrettable that they didn't see it as a opportunity to connect with their children and teach them, um, you know, and kind of have like a meaningful experience uh, and an attempt to have a conversation with them to, um, I don't want to say prepare them, um, but just to have that kind of like, I don't know, this is, this is really a tough one. Um, cause there's no way to really like sugarcoat it. Um, right. yeah. as a, as a parent, as a parent, I'm not offended, um, because uh, we don't have cable and we didn't see it, but like, you know, I've, I've talked to my, with my kids about it. Um, and I don't know, I, I, I think that like at, at some point you, you want to, you want to have that dialogue without like depressing them or finding right. a way to like, right. like make them horrified or, uh, I don't know. Right. Give but them as a learning experience, yeah. right? Like something bad happened and it was wrong, right? And we shouldn't, um, you know, support and encourage, um, you know, police brutality, killing of citizens. Uh, you know, it's, uh, it, you know, it's, it's hard to kind of uh, approach these subjects with such young children. But um, I think there's ways of doing it that um, can make it meaningful for both the parent uh, uh, and the child without like traumatizing them and, you know, uh, making them kind of like be terrified of the world uh, that's out there and around them. Mm -hmm. And so um, when I was writing the, some of these questions, I asked some of my friends and one of the things that one of them came up with, one of the 
topics they wanted me to bring up was um, police propaganda and performative activism, which basically is like people seeing this as like a trend and then like showing support when it really isn't like, like maybe they'll forget about it in a week or so. And then the police propaganda would be like police officers kneeling like with the protesters. And then like a few hours later, like um, causing even more violence or a week from now they're, they're doing the, um, something similar to the other instances. And obviously not all police officers do stuff like that. And we, we love our, our good cops and stuff, but um, yeah. So when you say, was it the term performative? Performative activism, which is basically like activism. just seeing it as a trend, basically. So like doing this because it's popular now and then, oh, like a week from now, like, you, like maybe you go back to your old ways or ignoring something that you see mm. in, in a social or public situation. Yeah, I mean, that's probably um, in a in a non 2020 year um, when things are relatively normal. I mean, generally, protests would probably happen. And then a week later, everybody go back to work and everything's forgotten about, right? And then the wheel just keeps on turning. But these are not ordinary times. Um, you know, millions of people are unemployed, and they've got nothing to do, right? So uh, and and they have like the free time and the opportunity to go out, um, you know, and, and have their voices be heard, right? And to, to go to a protest. So, um, you know, this is really, it's really fascinating in that um, the protests are continuing, right? I guess like in Seattle now, they have that whole, um, the whole chaz, right? It's like six whole blocks that the protesters have taken over and police yeah, are- what's going on um, there? Uh, <laughs> I mean, they're taking over six city blocks, um, you know, and that's, you know, in many ways, it's sort of similar to, um, you know, the Occupy movement, uh, you know, the Occupy Wall Street, uh, where it's, uh, it's going on longer than, than uh, people had expected. Um, mm -hmm. Now, you, you mentioned something about police propaganda. What did you mean by that? So that would be like, I think they, what this means is like, when police will like kneel with protesters and then like as soon as it like a few hours later when they're all at the protest then they like turn against the protesters or st stuff yeah. like that or like police that will say like oh like no one hates a bad cop more than a good cop and then they go into like when when, when something happens in their district they'll cover up for that bad cop because that's someone that they work with or something like that right right and it's more of like an accountability thing at that point too yeah i see i see yeah i thought that when you said propaganda i thought you were mentioning do you know about like the whole idea of the agent provocateur um there's this whole like there's this whole idea that like um you know when there are these periods of unrest and protest and you know people are looking for equality and justice that um there generally tends to be strong public support for the protests. Um, however, once those protests turn into say, like they become violent and there's like looting and fires and destruction of property, then that tends to um, reduce the public support for, uh, for, the, for the protests. Um, so I didn't, and I, I, this is probably like crazy conspiracy theory, um, but 
I remember when Let's the get Minneapolis. Well, I don't know if I have the next three hours to. <laughs> but this was okay. a Joe Rogan podcast, right? We could go for three hours, but yeah, let's um, keep it brief. Man. But I remember seeing like some videos when the Minneapolis protests were going on, and I think it was like people had videos of um, you know men who were dressed in black just going around like smashing like storefront windows and protesters confronting them, saying like, "What are you doing? Stop this!" Um, you know, and then there are all these like this rabbit hole that you could go down that found out that these were actually cops and the cops, the cops were like breaking things because, um, you know, I'm not saying those particular police know, but like there's this, uh, there's this belief that like, yes, exactly. Right. So when, when protests are no longer peaceful, now there's like, you know, storefronts being like windows being broken, um, car tires being slashed, whatever, whatever. Um, you know, that, turns the public away from um, supporting the protest to being opposed uh, to it. Total conspiracy theory though. So, right. But that's Definitely. why I thought you were going with the whole propaganda thing. Yeah. And um, I guess one of the, one of the other things is um, I think they're calling them opportunistic anarchists where they see an opportunity for crime to be committed without any real like repercussions, like the burning down of stores or looting and stuff like that. And it's people who are not even a part of the protest, but just know that because there is a lot of commotion going on where they can take advantage of this time and do something like that. And then it sheds a negative light on the actual root issue that is going on. Right. Too. Yeah, no, for sure. There's definitely, you know, um, like I said, there's a few bad apples, right? I'm sure that there were some people who took advantage of um, the civil unrest and the, you know, the absence of norms. And they're just like, all right, I'm going to go get me some Nikes or whatever, right? Right. whatever they were looking for. Yeah. And a lot of the videos people were saying, like, it seems like a lot of white people looting. Like, <laughs> but, <laughs> <laughs> just people trying to take advantage of the situation. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. We're um, not perfect. Yeah. Um, Another thing I wanted to bring up was um, how people that are not black can actively be allies and help the cause and use their white privilege for good. Um, well, I guess recognizing one's privilege would be a, a good a good start. Um, right. But also, like you know, if you have kids of your own, um, you know, raise them to be um, compassionate and empathetic towards people of all races, religions, sexualities, um, right. you know, social classes and whatever. Um, yeah. Uh, but like I said, I give you the an analogy earlier where it's like, you know, we're trying to, to shift the mindset of like 300 plus million people. Um, and it's not going to happen all at once. Um, you know, but, but white people can play you know, a significant role in that. I mean, we are the majority um, race in this country and over 240 million Americans uh, identify as white. Um, and so if we, um, I don't know, if we, if, if we're able to just um, be better at recognizing, um, you know, the, the race inequities that exist in this country, um, I think that that uh, would, be, would be a great start. Um, but on top of that, I also think that like one of the other things we need to focus more on is, is class, right? Like we, we talk a lot about yes. like racism, but like there's, there's often very little discussion on, um, the impacts of social class, right. And like right. the, 
the widespread wealth inequality that exists Definitely. in this country. Um, you know, I've talked about this in you know my class before, like the top 1% own over 40% of America's wealth. Right? So we're like all fighting with each other about like issues of race, um, you know, and at each other's throats when we could be taking some of this energy and, and starting to look at, um, you know, ways that we can uh, improve the lives of, um, of everyone, you know, um, right. teachers, cops, lawyers, um, even like fast food workers, right? I was thinking about this uh, a couple weeks ago when, um, you know, there's all this push from politicians and we're gonna get this economy back open and get everybody back to work. Um, and, you know, and I understand the sentiment, right? But like, I'm thinking about like people who say like work at Dunkin' Donuts, McDonald's or whatever, right? They're making minimum wage. Um, and so if like the, the CEO of McDonald's, right? Or the, uh, the CEO of like Wendy's or whoever, if they're, they're so eager to get people back to work, right? It really sort of speaks to like, who is actually making the money for them, right? Is it like, is the CEO making the money or is it the thousands of minimum wage workers who are like going out there risking their lives, right? Getting paid uh, barely a living wage, probably below a living wage. Um, mm -hmm. And I just don't think we focus on on class uh, enough, right? And the race issue is Definitely. obviously paramount and important, but mm -hmm. I think this is also a good opportunity to, um, you know, take, to kind of try to transcend race and just look at, at, at social class, right? Because Definitely. we all have our own individual race, but we also all have our, uh, our social class. Um, and how hard it is to, I think one of the things you talked about in your class was how hard it is in like social, uh, no, like um, the tiers almost. Yeah, and mobility is so hard yeah. to move up just one. Yeah, I mean, you're like you're statistically more likely to remain in your social class or move down than you are to move up. Um, and it's not to say it's impossible, it is, but um, you, it's, it's much easier for your, um, your, uh, your status to, to decline than it is for you to say, um, you know, be born into the working poor and, and make it into the upper middle class. It's not to say it's impossible, but um, you know, it's, uh, it's incredibly, incredibly difficult. Definitely. And um, I'm gonna switch gears uh, one more time before we wrap it up because um, we're almost, we're, we're about 45 minutes in here. So um, last year you had a, a little uh, brief moment of fame. Um, I'd like to bring this up a little bit if you're okay with that. Yeah, that's fine. That's fine. Um, My 15 minutes are over. <laughs> um, you had this Gen Z dictionary that you were making just from just things that you were picking up in class and just running down like modern slang pretty much. Mm -hmm. And then it's yeah. posted this, got you viral or at least the dictionary viral. And then people end up reaching out to you and, yeah. So what was this like? How, how, how did you uh, deal with this? And uh, um, <laughs> I don't know, like the, the letter or the email that I sent to my students about, um, you know, the, the protests in Minneapolis and George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, um, the Gen Z dictionary was something that was never intended for public consumption. <laughs> um, so I guess it's my own fault for like, mirroring it on my computer screens on my tv screens in my class um but it was it was pretty wild uh because i do remember the day that we were talking about the dictionary and it was on the screens and i didn't know that anybody took their picture took a picture of it because i have like a cell phone holder for kids to put their phones in um but uh 
yeah, the next morning I woke up and like my phone was blowing up, um, you know, text messages, emails, phone calls from um, former students, family members, like, is this you? What the heck's going on here? It was, it was totally bizarre. And um, yeah, that, uh, <laughs> and that day I just kept getting, um, you know, phone calls to the school, like email requests from different media outlets wanting to talk to me about this totally innocuous thing that I created just, you know, um, just for fun uh, to interact yeah. with my students uh, and to, you know, um, to allow me to keep track of uh, the different slang terms that, that, that they were using. I've kind of always been fascinated by that. Like even when I first started teaching in like 2004 and, um, you know, kids were saying things like that's hot and, you know, all kinds of other different like terms. And it was always a uh, it was always just kind of like fun to me. Like, uh, you know, if I'd hear a word used in a context that I didn't understand, I'd be like, well, what does that mean? Um, and you know, I always was like, always thought like, I should write these down and just keep like a document going. Um, and, you know, last year I finally did it. And of course it like blows up and takes off. And yeah, it was, uh, <laughs> I mean, it was fun. You know, it was, it was fun to, um, my kids were really excited about it, you know, because, it, you know, I'm getting like media requests and having to like be on like, um, channel five news and things like that and right. doing radio interviews and podcast interviews and you know i'm doing another one now for you so yep. did we talk about my um my pay what you're, what you're paying me for this <laughs> no <laughs> okay, all right all right i'll send you an invoice later hey when, when <laughs> um, i when i when i'm getting paid for this i'll try to help people out but <laughs> <laughs> uh, i'm totally kidding. but it was a it was a it was a pretty crazy experience um and uh you know it was in retrospect, it was nice to bring some positive attention to the school, um, you know, and to, I don't know, just, it was kind of cool seeing yeah, you know, my, my young kids, you know, you know, being like, oh, dad's on TV or he's like, he's famous and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Even though I'm not famous, Tucker, not. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So one of the things that surprised me was someone shared a, a YouTube clip, uh, I think the day it came out. Um, and I, I came across it. It was, you were on the Kelly Clarkson show. How did that come to, to come to be? Um, let's see. Uh, I was standing in line for the uh, humbug adventure at Santa's village in New Hampshire. <laughs> and I got a text. I got a, no, I got a message on Twitter from like, Oh, this is uh, Kayla from the Kelly Clarkson show. I don't think, I don't even know Kelly Clarkson had a show. What is this all about? So, you know, I, I called her and she's like, well, we'd love to have you, um, you know, uh, either film something and send it into us, or we might even have you come out and be on the show. Uh, so the way it just kind of worked out is they were like, you know, we'd like to fly you out here um, and have you be, you know, an audience guest on, on the Kelly Clarkson show. It was, it was crazy. Um, so I flew out on, what was it? Taping was on like a Tuesday. So we flew out like a Monday. It's like a six and a half hour flight. Um, was it to California? Yeah, I'm still mm -hmm. LA. Um, and I was like so nervous. I, I didn't sleep at all. So I was like up all night, um, just like terrified, like butterflies in my stomach. We get to like the, the studio there and I'm just like pacing in the like the dressing room. I just was like, I was a mess. I actually like have very little memory of, um, of being in the studio and very little memory of actually talking with her so like when you see that whole thing on youtube which i haven't watched i can't bring myself to watch it um uh i i uh, i can't remember almost any of it really it was just so like um crazy 
It must have felt like Amazing. a dream. It <laughs> <laughs> must have been so uh, crazy. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Like like and, like, uh, like you yeah. just come home and wake up and you're like, "Whoa, what?" <laughs> what just right, happened? Right. It's like May, May 2nd, I'm getting ready to just go do my everyday job. Next thing you know, it's like, uh, oh, you know, Twitter's blowing up, emails, phone calls, you know, a couple months later, <laughs> so you're flying funny. out to LA. I had to wear makeup. Ugh. The power of the internet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I know. It's it's crazy, right? But and, you know, and speaking of the power of the internet, you know, it's it's amazing to see um just how much social media has sort of changed, um, you know, the way that we perceive uh, things like uh, human behavior and, uh, you know, things like um, law enforcement. Right? Because everybody's, everybody's got a phone now, right? Everybody's got a camera on them. So uh, things have changed so much that like people have to be aware of their behavior, what they're saying, what they're doing, um, you know, because uh, someone could just be recording you. You yeah, know, private and, uh, interactions aren't so private anymore. Right, like if you're yeah. if you're a guy riding um, on a bike path in Maryland and you um, confront a little girl because she's hanging up Black Lives Matter posters and ripped them out of her hand, uh, but it, they get it recorded. Now you just lost your job, right? So yeah, it's uh, it's it's amazing that like um, you know the power of social media, the power of cell phones, and how we're kind of like. Um, monitoring each other, surveilling each other, um, you know, it's almost like a form of, of social control, right? Like, yeah. I remember seeing um, a video last week of like a, a woman in a bagel shop in New York and she wasn't wearing a mask and people were like, you need to be wearing a mask. Uh, and then she went over and coughed on somebody, right? oh. like an aggressive act, um, you know, and that they put it on the internet, people identified her, found out where she works, right? So it's, uh, wow. yeah, it's crazy. It's yeah. crazy. So someone took a picture, someone took a picture of something that was on the screen in my classroom and you know, it kind of went crazy and I ended up in LA and whatever. And I'm actually glad that that's over because I hate, I hate the attention so much. Um, <laughs> you know, I just, I just want to go back to being nobody and just, you know, living my life, do, being a teacher to my students, trying to be a, uh, you know, a, 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 a positive role model for the kids of Lowell, try to like, you know, be a good, dad to my kids and husband Definitely. to my wife um you know uh so i'm, I'm glad that all of that it's over but i'm also you know in, in a lot of ways glad it happened too because it was uh <laughs> as terrified as i was uh to see like how the internet like you know it's just sort of like virtual thing but it can actually like come crashing down onto your real life um you know it was uh it, it's definitely something i'll never forget <laughs> definitely so um I'm going to wrap it up now. Thank you so much for coming on and um, talking about like such important issues. And I felt like where you are a sociology, you, you count as a sociology professor, right? Because you teach um, a dual enrollment level. Like, are you? Yeah, I yeah, teach so... EMS level too. So, um, oh, okay. Yeah. So I, I usually do um, usually one class a semester at UMass Law. So I'm, you know, I'm usually there in the summer. They had to like cancel a lot of the in-person classes because of COVID. Uh, so I'm not there this summer, but yeah, it's, uh, I teach at UMass Lowell uh, fairly regularly. Awesome. Um, so yeah, thank you once again so much for coming on and um, talking about um, such important issues. And um, hopefully people can learn something from this uh, as they do every day in your classes. Uh, also, thank you so much for all you do at Lowell High School, making a better place. Um, so many students have um, made their appreciation for you public. Um, as like I, I see it all the time whenever um, when, whenever you seem to do anything, people just love it. And uh, 
I'm all here for it. <laughs> I, I appreciate it, but I don't really do it for the recognition, right? No, I, I just kind of feel like that's, that's my job. Um, and I'm actually, I'm very uh, flattered and honored that you invited me on here. I mean, I'm in, I'm in uh, such great company with, uh, who is it? Pat Coughlin has been on your podcast, yep. Matt Draper, Quest Harris, man, yeah. like, I can't believe I'm at their level now. <laughs> yeah, I just try to get people who um, have a story to tell or a passion or talent or something and um, try to get that out there the best I can for them. And uh, you're, yeah, you're definitely uh, in that category with those guys. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I appreciate, uh, I appreciate you having me on, Tucker. It's been great. Okay, of course, yeah. Um, Everyone, please don't forget to like and subscribe. And you can also watch this on YouTube. You can listen on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Thank you so much and have a good night. Look at my diamonds, look at my drip, yeah. I'm getting blessed, I feel like it's a dream, yeah. Yeah, I'm the man, yeah, I'm the man, yeah.